Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, Rachel Maddow, The Young Turks, and my friend and podcasting colleague, Godless Kinzer. Oh, so much amazing stuff in the news. The, the Republicans now are they're going to be debating Iraq. I'm, I, you know, I have been, I have been saying this for, forever. Uh, the the Republicans are, are going to make this an issue, and they are going to win with it. The Democrats are looking at absolute electoral disaster in November if they don't get their act together and their message together, particularly around Iraq. Bush's strategy, the Republican strategy. It's not just Bush's. It's really the Karl Rove strategy. The Republican strategy on Iraq, politically, the political strategy, is, you know, we know that their military strategy is a total botch up. But the political strategy is twofold. Number one, to, to portray what's going on in Iraq as a war, that we are fighting a war against somebody. Now, if you're fighting a war, you must be fighting against somebody. The reality, for those of us who live in the reality-based world and are moderately well-informed, you know, pay attention to the news. The reality is that uh, 95%, more or less, you know, plus or minus 1% or 2% of the attacks against Americans in Iraq are coming from Iraqis. That's called an insurgency, not a war. It's a very different thing. What it means is that we are not engaged in a war, we're engaged in an occupation. We are occupying Iraq, and the occupied country, the people in that occupied country are saying, you know, we'd really rather you weren't here. But the Bushies are going to try and convince Americans that we are in a war. Now, in order to have a war, you have to have an enemy. And I pointed out before how Zarqawi was was basically a nobody. He was a nobody who wanted to become a somebody, and Bush made him a somebody. Because it benefited Bush. Well, once Bush kills Zarqawi, he's got to come up with somebody else. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there will be a new leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and he, his name will be a household word within a month, probably within a week. But certainly by November of 2006, there will be a new leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And even though it's not Al-Qaeda who is attacking us the vast majority of the time in Iraq, there will be, all the press reports are going to be about this, the White House is going to be, Tony Snow is going to be talking about it, the President's going to be talking about it, everything is going to be about the new leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. We got the old leader, now we got a new leader. So, number one, the Republicans are going to continue to use this meme of it's a war. And number two, they're going to continue to try and convince Americans that the enemy that we are fighting the war against is Al-Qaeda. Now, if it's Al-Qaeda, then, hey, you know, there's a pretty good consensus across the United States. It was Al-Qaeda who attacked us on 9-11 and the USS Cole and the earlier World Trade Center bombing and, 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 and. And so, gee, if, if we're fighting al-Qaeda in Iraq, it must be that we went into Iraq to punish those SOBs who knocked down the towers, right? Who, who attacked the Pentagon, who hijacked that airplane that those people so nobly took control of, as we saw in that movie about Flight 93. The Bush administration is reinventing the war. And until the Democrats figure this out, figure it, I just, you know, it just amazes me. I mean, I had this conversation with Harry Reid last week. I had four different members of Congress I talked to, uh, or not last week, earlier this week, Monday and Tuesday of this week at the Take Back America conference. Four different members of Congress. And, and again this morning, I had this conversation with Earl Blumenauer and, and, and said, until you guys stop using the, use, the word war and take that away from George W. Bush, you're going to lose. Because nobody wants to lose a war. Everybody wants to win a war. Even if it's the wrong war, people want to win the war. Well, we're already in the war, so we've got to win it. That's the that's kind of the Hillary position, right? That's the Joe Lieberman position. We're in a war, we've got to win it. 
But if it's not a war, if it's an occupation, well, you know, you know it's an occupation. It's time to end the occupation. You know, we occupied Germany for a little while. Well, there's still troops in Germany. Yes, but they're not occupying troops. Germany's running itself, thank you very much. They are, we are, our troops in Germany are allies who are there, who were there, to protect Germany from the Soviet Union. Not to occupy Germany. The occupation of Germany didn't last even a year. Germany started rebuilding itself. And that, and, and by the way, that occupation of Germany that we had after World War II was by and large a feeding operation. Because people were starving. They, we had destroyed so much of their infrastructure. They were having cholera epidemics. They were having famine. You read Theodore White's book about, uh, I forget the title, but uh, you can find Theodore White, about, about his, his writings. He, he was in Germany at, at the end of World War II. Just traveled around the country. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling. So, if we can reframe this thing as an occupation, if we can if we can cause people to think of it as an occupation, if the Democrats stop using the word war. And for that matter, we have to stop using the word war. We, you know, in time of war. No, it's not time of war. It's a time of occupation. Well, what about Al Qaeda? They're after us. Yes. And they're criminals. It's not a war. Was, was Britain having a war with the Irish Republican Army? No. They were trying to round up criminals. Is Spain having a war with, with ETA? With the Basque separatists? No, it's not a war. It's, it's, it, it is, you have, you have, it's an insurgency, you could argue. It's a nationalist movement, but, you know, was Italy having a war with, with uh, the, with the uh, Red Brigades? I mean, they, after all, they kidnapped a prime minister, put him in the trunk of a car. He died. Was it a war? No. They, they arrested these people as criminals, held them criminally responsible, put them in prison, and that was the end of it. If, if we want to succeed in ending radical Islam's attempts to bring down Western society, or at least America, the American part of Western society. If we want to succeed in doing that, we have to take a lesson from, oddly enough, Hamas. I mean, you know, what have these folks, or Al-Qaeda for that matter, what have they done? They go in and they feed people. They run schools. They run hospitals. And the people go, oh, these are pretty good guys. We used to do this. This used to be the foreign policy of the United States. We were the good guys, remember? We're here with care. We're here with it's you know food from the United States. We're we're airlifting supplies into famine areas. We're bringing in doctors into hospitals. We've got the Peace Corps going helping hold the peace together all around the world. Now, if American groups show up in half the world, and not half the in many countries in the world. It's like you've got a bullseye on your back because of the Bush foreign policy. We need to clearly identify what is going on in Iraq as an occupation. And once the American people get it, and once the Democrats are successful in that meme, in putting forward that meme, this is the occupation of Iraq. And the occupation of Iraq today, get the news reporters to talk about it. It's not a war in Iraq. It is an occupation. There's not a war on terror any more than there's a war on drugs or a war on poverty. It's a rhetorical device. There are criminals out there who operate outside the mainstream of their own religion. They operate outside the mainstream of any country. They are criminals. We need to have a worldwide police action against them. Get the, get the police of the nations of the world together. Get Interpol together and treat them like, you know, they're terrorists. They're, Let's go after those. Let's take it's the mafia for all for, for all practical purposes.
are some of the stories that we are keeping an eye on this morning, some of the stories making headlines around the country and around the world. But every day here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, (coughs) giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's right-wing political tactic uh, is a bit of a classic. It's um, a subtle one, though. It's basically never actually arguing your point, taking action to advance your view of the world and what you want to get done without ever actually owning up to what you're doing, without ever actually saying what you're doing. So what you're doing never has to withstand an actual counter argument. On Friday at 4.59 p.m., the Reuters News Service ran a little item that did not get picked up in the weekend papers. The Reuters story said that congressional Republican staffers did something really freaking momentous about the war on Friday without ever arguing for it, without ever saying that's what they were doing or making a case for why they didn't send out a press release. They didn't even have a member of Congress do it. They had unnamed staffers do it late at night. Um, My parents' member of Congress... Uh, who is Barbara Lee uh, of California, got an amendment passed in the in the House. The House passed it, an amendment that said that we would not build and maintain permanent military bases in Iraq. The Pentagon would have been, uh, under, under this amendment, prohibited from spending any of the money Congress is giving them for the war. The Pentagon would be prohibited from entering into a military basing rights agreement with Iraq. It would have put the U.S. basically on record against the permanent basing of U.S. military facilities in Iraq. This passed the House. And a similar provision passed the Senate. The Senate version said the Pentagon could not use the next round of war funding to establish permanent United States military bases in Iraq or to exercise United States control over the oil infrastructure or oil resources of Iraq. Think about what that means. Think about what that means. Democrats put these forward in the House and the Senate, and they passed. They put these things in the war funding bill to call the Republican bluff on why we went to Iraq in the first place. If we, you know, if we went, if you believe any of their stated reasons, if we went because of a threat, if we went to liberate Iraq, if we went to create a, a beacon of democracy, if we went to, to, to take the veil off Iraqi women, who knows? I mean, all of the various things that they've unveiled at the, at, 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 as retroactive justifications for why we went. If we went to defend the oil for food program from Saddam's meddling, all of the, all of the random things they have retroactively used as justifications for the war. If we went there to do any of those things, then, We don't want their oil, right? And we certainly don't want a permanent military presence there. We don't want permanent military bases if we're there because of a threat, if we're there because we liberated them, if we're there because we want to create a beacon of democracy. None of those visions include permanent military bases filled with U.S. soldiers. So the Republicans let these amendments pass in the House and the Senate because arguing against them would be a scandal. You'd have to argue for why you want to be able to control their oil, why you want to be able to have permanent military bases there. That would be a scandal. They can't make that argument. They can't show their faces and defend that idea to the American people until they've come up with some nicer way to couch it. So they don't make an argument for it. They don't make their case. They didn't actually say that they were against those amendments. What they did is they had Republican staffers remove those provisions from the bills before House and Senate negotiators convened this week in a late-night work section to write the compromise spending bill. They did it in the dead of night. They didn't even have members of Congress do it. What they had was Republican staffers, unnamed staffers, just excise this out of there. David Obey, the senior Democrat in the House Appropriations Committee, tried to get this language put back in. But Jim Colby, Arizona Republican, uh, who's responsible for foreign, foreign affairs portions of the spending bill, opposed it. Of course, he didn't make a big press conference about it and say what he was doing. He just quietly opposed it. They can't defend their positions rationally. And so they go behind the cloak of darkness. They go into secret measures like this. They can't defend it. They can't come up with an argument. They can't withstand actual debate over their ideas. And so they do this stuff in a way that it never gets debated. Welcome back to the podcast, Bunker, everybody. I've got some great audio today. 
that I got from crooksandliars.com. I got the video from them, stripped the audio off of it myself. This is an amazing exchange between Michael Berg, the father of Nicholas Berg, the young businessman who was beheaded here, and his beheading attributed to Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. This is uh, Michael Berg's conversation on the phone on American Mornings on CNN with Soledad O'Brien on the news that that uh, Zarqawi was dead. I'm curious to know your reaction as it is now confirmed that Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the man who is widely credited and blamed for killing your son, Nicholas, uh, is dead. Well, my reaction is that I'm sorry whenever any human being dies. Uh, Zarqawi is a human being. He has a family who are reacting just as my family reacted when Nick was killed. And I feel badly for that. I feel doubly badly, though, because Zarqawi is also a political figure. And his death will reignite yet another wave of revenge. And revenge is something that I do not follow, that, that I do not ask for, that I do not wish for against anybody. And uh, it's an endless cycle. As long as people use violence to combat violence, uh, we will always have violence. Wow. That man has the forbearance of a saint. I hold no illusions about myself being able to be that forgiving of humanity if something like that were to happen to my wife or either of my boys. I, myself, I probably would be calling for the perpetrator's heads, but I do not see myself as, as evolved a soul as Michael Berg apparently is and good on him, more power to him. The uh, exchange continues as follows. I have to say, sir, I'm surprised. I know how devastated you were. Your family was, frankly, when uh, Nick was, was killed in such a horrible and brutal well, and public way. You surprised because I have never said anything but forgiveness and peace. No, no. And, and, and we have spoken before, and I'm well aware of that. But at some point, uh, one would think, is there a moment where you say, I'm glad he's dead, the man who killed my son. Yeah, I, I, how can I, a human being be glad that another human being is dead? Any man's death diminishes me. That's what John Donne said, and I believe those words. Wow. Once again, a lesson that we could all really benefit from learning. It's just amazing, this man. It's That mindset is just so incredibly sane compared to what's going on in today's world. And uh, now he really breaks down the heart of the problem in so many modern conflicts. You talked about the fact that he's become a political figure. Are you concerned that he becomes a martyr and a hero and, in, in fact, in, in invigorates the insurgency in Iraq? Of course. When, when Nick was killed, I felt that I had nothing left to lose uh, on the pacifist, so I wasn't going out, you know, murdering people. But I I'm, was not a risk-taking person. And yet I've done things that have endangered me tremendously. I've been shot at. I've been shared horrible pictures. I've been called all kinds of names and threatened by all kinds of, uh, of people. Um, and yet I feel that I have nothing left to lose, so I do those things. Now, take it to someone who in 1991 maybe had their family killed by an American bomb. Uh, their support system whisked away from them. Someone who, instead of being 59, as I was when Nick died, was five years old or 10 years old. Um, you know, if I were that person, might I not learn how to fly a plane into a building or strap a bag of bombs to my back? That's what is happening. Every time we kill an Iraqi, every time we kill anyone, we are creating a large number of people who are going to want vengeance. And we've you know, when are we ever going to learn if that doesn't work? Now, here Soledad tries to get back on the positive talking points and tries to put the positive spin back on Al-Zarqawi's death, which is a good thing, yes, that a man like this is no longer in the world, but Mike Berg's having nothing of it. And, in fact, goes ahead and goes back to what has been obscured by the recent good news. There's an alternative reading which would say... At some point, Iraqis will say uh, the insurgency is not okay, that they'll in fact be inspired by the death of, of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in the sense of he was turned in, for example, we believe, by uh, his own 
Iraqi uh, you know, number two, number three, leadership in, in his ranks, and that, that that's actually them saying, you know, we do not want this kind of violence in our country, and experts who we've spoken to this morning have said, this is sort of the critical moment where Iraqis need to figure out which direction the country is going to go. That would be an alternate reading to the scenario that you're pointing to. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't believe that scenario, because every time that news of new atrocities committed by Americans in Iraq uh, becomes public, more and more of the everyday Iraqi people who tried to hold out, who tried to be peaceful people, lose it and 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 join the what we call the insurgency, what I call uh, the resistance against the occupation of a once sovereign nation. Setting aside the possibility that Zarqawi's own people under him that wanted to move up in the organization saw this as a perfect chance to have somebody else do the dirty work and save themselves from uh, being scrutinized from within by letting the Americans do their dirty work. Uh, Soledad attempts once again to turn back to a talking point, an administration talking point, and uh, Mike Berg shoots her down. There's a theory that a struggle for democracy, I mean, we have, you know, the, the parliament. Come well, on, the, you the, can't the really believe that that's a democracy there when the people who are running the elections are holding guns. That's not democracy. Soledad doubles back now and tries to rephrase uh, so that she can try to enforce the you've got to break a few eggs frame. But Michael Berg really breaks it down. There is a theory that as they try to form some kind of government that in fact it's going to be brutal, it's going to be bloody, there's going to be loss, and that's the history of many countries. That, that that's just a lot of people pay for what they believe will be better than what they had under Saddam Hussein. Well, you know, under, I'm not saying Saddam Hussein was a good man, but he's no worse than George Bush. Saddam Hussein didn't pull the trigger, didn't commit the rapes. Uh, neither did George Bush, but both men are responsible for them un, under their, their reigns of, of terror. Um, I, I, I don't buy that. Uh, Iraq did not have al-Qaeda in it. Al-Qaeda supposedly killed my son. Under Saddam Hussein, no al-Qaeda. Under George Bush, al-Qaeda. Under Saddam Hussein, relative stability. Under George Bush, instability. Under Saddam Hussein, about 30,000 deaths a year. Under George Bush, about 50,000 deaths a year. I don't get it. Why is it better to have George Bush be the king of Iraq rather than Saddam Hussein? Michael Berg is the father of Nicholas Berg, the young man, young businessman who was beheaded uh, so brutally in, uh, in Iraq back in May of 2004. Joining us by phone from Wilmington, Delaware, Mr. Berg, thank you. Thank you for talking with us this morning. Well, that didn't go at all like Soledad and so many of the uh, corporate media hope it will go. They have a mindset that is hostile to anybody who has lost family members in the current uh, ongoing conflict who does not toe the administration line and you see that with Ann Coulter recently uh, attacking the 9-11 widows who have been active in trying to find out what really happened to their husbands the attitude on that side of the aisle is that only they are allowed to use the dead to promote their message and they want you to believe that anybody who has ever died as a result of terrorist activity or guerrilla activity in the current conflict is a good supporter of the current administration and therefore you know what they uh, what's being done is justified and is legitimized to uh, basically avenge their sacrifice and uh, as we can see from the Jersey Girls, the the 9/11 widows, and from Mike Berg, that is not always the case. And uh, I would urge you to go to a website that has a little more on the history of Al Zarqawi and how he became as big a figure in Iraq as he was purported to be. And uh, it's a long, long URL, so I went ahead and went to uh, tinyurl.com. So just go, just uh, type into your browser address bar. T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash Z5YX6 That's Zulu 5 Yankee X-Ray 6 
and that will take you to an article, a little more backstory on Zarqawi. And I'll call that the end of my first segment. Me and Jank talking to Wes Clark, and here it is from uh, the Yearly Coast Convention in Las Vegas. While you're traveling around the country talking to people, what was that first sort of motivation to not just be a retired general and make millions of dollars, but actually sort of continue with the public service? Well, I found when I was in uniform and I had to go through all the pain and challenges I had trying to motivate and lead NATO and stopping Serb ethnic cleansing, I found that the most... Actually, the most wonderful thing in life is when you're placed in a position where you can stand up and talk about what you believe in and fight for what you believe in. And um, so I got out of the military, and, and the plan was to go into business and then and make some money and then go into university teaching and then reduce my golf handicap to where I could be a golf pro. Noble goal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a normal goal. Sure. Not just noble, but normal. And Because uh, we'd had 34 years in the public sector, you know. And so, uh, and, and my wife said, now look, she said, now you be very careful. She said, don't you get used by people politically. You've you got to keep on both sides of this. So I thought, yeah, that's, that's good advice. I'll call Condoleezza Rice. I've never met her. And, of course, I was in the Ford administration. I knew Rumsfeld and Cheney and all those people. But this was 2000. They weren't in the picture then. I said, I'll call, uh, I'll call Condoleezza and ask her, you know, about things. And I called her. She said, oh, I'll come over and talk to you. So she came over to talk to me. And, and it was... Um, it turned into a pretty one-sided conversation in which she accused us of wrecking the relations with Russia, of uh, being involved in a war in the Balkans we didn't have to be in, of having our troops maldeployed. And as she said, there's no point in the United States doing peacekeeping. She said, we've got the only soldiers who could fight, and that's our, what our soldiers need to be prepared to do, and we're going to move them where they're going to fight. That's a well, tremendous irony. Yeah. By the time that was over... I was like, you know, wrong, 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 wrong. And, and you know, she got kind of, um, you know, she, her, her authority was being challenged by me, just a retired four-star general. And she was, the, the, you know, the national security director designate of the, you know, she knew a, a lot, she thought. And, uh, and so um, we agreed we'd talk again, but we never did. <laughs> so I couldn't support that vision of, of international affairs. So I didn't want to get involved in politics, but I did speak out, and then so I got let me, let me just CNN and let me, but let me understand that. So your objection, though, to the Bush administration started significantly before the not before the nonsense started. Yeah, before they were ever elected. I mean, I said these people are crazy. You know, they don't know what they're doing. They 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 they're they're coming in with an ideology instead of taking the facts and the circumstances and creating a strategy. They're coming in to impose something. But then you see, as I sort of unravel this over time, after 9-11, and I begin to realize this over a period of years, what had happened. I remember being in the Pentagon in 1991 when I was a one-star general. I was commanding the National Training Center out of Fort Irwin, but I had to go back to D.C. for a set of uh, classes and things as part of my general officer education. So I went by the Pentagon one afternoon. I think it was a Friday afternoon. I saw General Colin Powell, and when I was down in his office, I asked his assistant, could she call up and see if Paul Wolfowitz is there? Paul had come out to visit us at the NTC while we were training the National Guard before the war in Iraq or in Kuwait, in, Gulf, you know, in the Gulf War. And he said, if I ever get back to the Pentagon, come and see him. So I thought, well, it's, just, it's a Friday afternoon. I'll see if he's available. So, you know, he said, come on up. So a guy named Scooter Libby opened the door and <laughs> brought me in. I mean, I never heard of Scooter Libby. And I went in to see Paul Wolfowitz. He was the undersecretary, the number three guy, undersecretary of defense for policy. I said, congratulations, Mr. Secretary, on the war in Iraq. It's, uh, you know, it, went, it went real well. We're real proud of the troops. He said, well, thanks, he said. But he said, not really. He said, um, we should have gotten rid of Saddam. He said, some people say he still could be overthrown. He said, I, I, I doubt it. He said, but we did learn one thing. He said, we discovered that now, for the first time, we can use U.S. military power, and the Soviets won't challenge us and act against us. And he said, we've got a window of five years, ten years, maybe more, to clean up this region before the next big superpower comes along, and we've got to do that. And this was the germ that 
became the Republican strategy eight years, nine years later. And that's, that's the whole rationale. It was to go in and clean up with military effect, to kick you-know-what, and, uh, you know, go in there and shape them up. Yeah, but the problem with it is that these are people that don't know about military forces. Military forces don't go in and shape things up. I mean, you know, military forces go in, you tiptoe in, you give them enormous responsibilities, and you ask them, please don't break the China you're authorized to do anything you have a police. Don't do it unless you absolutely have to. Because when you hurt people, when you go in and violate someone's home, knock in the door, throw the guy on the ground, put his hands behind his back, put your boot in his back, shove his wife into the other room and the kids are screaming, that will never be forgotten. And they will hate you for that. You would in the United States, in Arkansas, where I live. If people did that, we'd be shooting at them. And, you know, it's, you can't do that. We were very careful in the Balkans to be very respectful. And somehow we lost all that. See, General Clark, I want to ask you about that. Kosovo, you got sectarian strife like you do in Iraq. You had a, a, a bad dictator like you did in Iraq. Kosovo, we do the war. We don't lose a single U.S. casualty. And Iraq, we see the mess now. What was, do you think, in your experience, obviously you were the uh, Allied commander there, what was the critical difference? Or may, were there several differences? And, and what did we do wrong in Iraq that we did right in Kosovo? First of all, we only got involved in the Balkans because we had to, not because we wanted to. It wasn't elective. It wasn't a choice like it was in Iraq. It was like, in Iraq, it was like, hey, let's go find some, uh, some people and let's, uh, let's show we can take down a government. Or we're going to prove to al-Qaeda we're tough and we can take losses. And whoa, that, none of that was the case. We were drawn into the Balkans because diplomacy alone didn't work. It had to be backed by the threat of force. You know, we did the Dayton Peace Talks in 1995, but they only really got traction when a Serb mortar shell landed in a marketplace in Sarajevo and we retaliated by 17 days of some very limited airstrikes in Bosnia. And I was with Milosevic at the time, with Richard Holbrook, and Milosevic is saying, please, General Clark, General Clark, please stop bombing. It's bad for peace. Well, no, no, it was very good for peace because Milosevic didn't want to get bombed. I spent hundreds of hours with Milosevic, with other members of our delegation during the time, 1995, 96, when we were putting the peace deal together in the Balkans. And when it came time to go to war against Milosevic, I knew him. I'm probably the only general in the 20th century who's really known the mind of his adversary. So when I would get on television every day or every other day in these press conferences in Brussels, and I would say what the facts were, and at the end of it I'd say, Milosevic is losing, we're winning, and he knows it. I knew he was watching me. He was looking to see, was I confident that I had big bags under my eyes? He knew he couldn't trust his own generals. He knew General Clark was telling the truth. And eventually, when we ramped up the air campaign and we planned for ground power, and then we started the negotiations at the same time to give him a way out, he was a very rational, calculating guy. He picked a way out because he knew the hammer was coming, and he knew he would be destroyed if he let Kosovo be invaded with with the Albanians and, and the American forces. He knew. We knew he was rational. And I knew his mind and how to work it. So, General Clark, it was a matter of uh, a combination of diplomacy and negotiations and threat of force and force, right. rather than the one-tiered approach that they use with the Bush administration, which is force and complete force. And, and that's not going to work because it doesn't give somebody an out, as you said. And well, they could have given Saddam Hussein an out. I mean, at the end, apparently he was willing to leave the country, and they didn't want it. They, you see, the administration had always went into this thing with mixed motives. It wasn't just about WMD. 
It wasn't about, gee, maybe he'll negotiate and let us finish the inspection. There were people in the administration that said, gosh, I hope he doesn't give in to this U.N. inspection. Thing. What if he opens up and what if he lets us inspect and then we won't be able to invade? It's well, the like, inspectors were there for crying out loud. I know, but it was like we've got to have a pretext for, invade, for invading, you know. we got to make him so mad we'll get to invade. Why? Because they wanted to demonstrate the U.S. use of force. Why? Because they had a mistaken impression of the um, uh, of how America is viewed in the world, and of how America gets its way in the world. America gets its way in the world not because people are afraid of being struck by aircraft carriers. America gets its way in the world; it has in the past because people generally understand that our ideas have a lot of power. They're backed by economic power, legal power, diplomatic power, and people liked us. And then, in addition, you know, if necessary, you backed us in the wall. We we were pretty competent militarily. It wasn't like the Roman Empire. It wasn't like here come the legions. You know, look out; they're going to crucify everybody. And yet, somehow, these people got the entire wrong impression about the world. They read a couple of, I guess, voice intercepts of somebody saying. We're not afraid of the Americans. And so they, you know, that was the excuse to justify an invasion. Look, you're dealing with a mentality in which people are very macho. It's a very normal thing in many societies, and especially in the society we're, we're up against there, that people beat on their breasts and talk about, you know, they're real men and they're not afraid of anything and blah, blah, blah. That, that's not an adequate justification for an invasion of a country. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, and I just wanted to touch on it because I find it fascinating, about a 19, that 1991 meeting yeah. with Paul Wolfowitz. And, and you're meeting it back in 2000 with Condoleezza Rice, who we know had the history of sort of, she was a Sovietologist. Right. And it just strikes me of, of how much of the 2003 Iraq war is still leftover obsession with the Soviet Union, which I think makes the war seem perhaps even more ridiculous than it already seemed 12 minutes ago to me. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, people are always the victims or the beneficiaries of their own experiences. And we had a whole mindset about this. I'll give you another example. I was out at a conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in the summer of 1998. I was still in uniform, and I was on a leadership panel with some other people who were at the conference. The other people were Colin Powell and Dick Cheney and Jim Baker. And there were four of us, plus another woman who was sitting up on these stools, you know, talking to these students. And um, they were asking me about leadership. Well, I was in uniform, and I was. this was during the time when the ethnic cleansing was igniting in Kosovo. The Albanian generals had come to me, and they said, from our border posts, we can see the artillery falling in Kosovo on our cousins, and we don't like it. I mean, I, I knew it was going on. People were giving me eyewitness accounts of it. And... When I tried to explain this, all I could get from Cheney, Powell, and Baker was, well, in 1991, when we went against Saddam Hussein, and, you know, these three old buddies here all jousting with each other, talking about 1991, it was like Europe is irrelevant, the Balkans is irrelevant, Bosnia was irrelevant. This was a huge thing the United States did to step into the Bosnian War and bring peace. It was huge. And it was also a huge thing the United States did to motivate NATO to stop another round of ethnic cleansing by Slobodan Milosevic. And yet, these people were not prepared to even acknowledge it. It was like, oh, Democrats, they don't know anything. This is, go back to our view. See, they, they, they didn't want to learn. So when they came to office, and here's, here's a point I want to leave you all with and, and focus on. Look, we knew Osama bin Laden was a threat. I mean, my troops in Europe were on alert from August on after those bombings in, in Tanzania and Kenya in 1998. We knew that was coming from al-Qaeda. We had a full court press on against al-Qaeda. Probably should have done more than we did, but we did send Tomahawk missiles in there. I wasn't in on the planning of that. I don't know what the considerations were. It wasn't you know, my responsibility, and I couldn't get access to it. But... Um, that's the way it works in the military chain of command. You can't do everything. But we sure knew about Osama bin Laden. And we talked to the administration. My friend Richard Clark talked very clearly to Condoleezza and others. So did Sandy Berger when the, there was a transition period in, after the 25th of January of 2001. And they chose to ignore the advice, the information, and the plans they were given. They chose to ignore it because it came from an administration that they didn't respect. And that ignorance, to my view, constitutes command negligence, 
by the President of the United States for failing to organize our government to take action on the intelligence and warnings we received about a potential threat to the United States that resulted in 9-11. That's, that's the flaw. The Iraq War is a cover-up of the failure that led to 9-11. That's an interesting uh, point as well. We're talking to General Clark. You see, I've always thought the Democrats didn't do a good enough job of emphasizing, look, when we ran a war, we didn't lose a single U.S. soldier. We completely achieved our objectives. I've written about this. Why don't they brag about that? Instead, they're always playing defense. They're always playing defense. Look at the war the Republicans did. Look at the war the Democrats did. On a political level, I don't know why they don't do that, putting aside policy. Now, as far as policy is concerned... I don't think... Well, let me answer that question. You know, I don't think wars are something that anyone should be bragging about. A war is something ugly. You do it only as a last resort. It's not like a football championship. When you've been in it, and I've been in it, it's real bad. In, in war, every single issue becomes a matter of life and death. People who could normally compromise suddenly won't compromise. Questions of fact become matters of honor and integrity. Tempers flare. People stay up all night. There's total exhaustion. Everything is, every problem is magnified. And the consequences are, are, are permanent. When those bombs fall, people die. And we had a, we had a mistake, for example, where it was a defective uh, device on a cluster bomb unit that was dropped over niche. And the cluster bomb unit broke open at, at too high an altitude, and it scattered bomblets, and three or four of them hit on a schoolyard, and a couple of kids were killed. Believe it or not, about three weeks later, I got a letter from a Serb. He said, you killed my granddaughter. I will never forgive you, and I will kill you. I knew how he felt. And these, that's why I don't, I don't, you know, get, get upset because Democratic Party leaders aren't bragging about this thing. This is a very serious matter when a nation goes to war. It's never to be done lightly. It's not bombastic. It's with deep regret because human life is going to be lost and the fortunes and honor of nations are at stake. So it's just very different. And there's been, because the United States hasn't had a war in its own territory, some states ever, even in the South for 150 years, people forget how ugly and awful war is. It's awful. And that's why it can only be taken undertaken as an absolute last resort. We've got less than a minute, uh, General Clark. Uh, we have to do the Tim Russert, uh, you know, it's the end of the interview. Now you ask about running for president. I want to ask it in two ways. One, are you going to run? And two, is it too or is it too daunting a challenge with as much money as Hillary is capable of raising? I haven't even thought about 2008. I, I'm just working 2000. That really, that's really true? You 100% swear across your heart? I'm working 2006 because... I'm in business right now. When I got out of the race in 2004, I didn't have anything but my military pension. I couldn't pay for my house and my secretary. I had to go back into the business community. I'm not in elective office. I mean, people are nice enough to donate money so I can have a little bit of a staff. I go out and campaign for people. I don't know about 2008. But, frankly, it's irrelevant. 2006 is what's important because we get the right people in office. We can stop the deterioration of this country. And we got to do that. John Clark, I want to ask one more thing about policy. Uh, are you, uh, you know, you say how grave war is, and we couldn't agree more. And it seems like uh, they might do it again with Iran. Uh, I don't know uh, if they, you know, what you think the status of that is. Certainly, they're thinking about I'm it. I'm worried. Yeah, and do you get the sense that there's more pushback from the Pentagon and from the actual uh, generals and soldiers? Now, and will that, do you think that'll make a difference, or will there come a time where they say, oh, these generals, again, they don't know what they're doing, let's do, let's, let's just bomb Iran. We won't put soldiers in, we'll just bomb them, it'll be easy. Do you think that they might still be that arrogant, or is the pushback going to make a difference this time? Pushback's going to make a difference, but it may not be decisive. Yes, there's some pushback, but ultimately, I think the president, um, by all of his statements, he's going to... As long as the Iranians continue to, 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 re to enrich uranium, as long as they don't agree, um, as long as the current government's in power in Iran, unless the intelligence suddenly says there's no threat, 
I think the president's going to have a very hard time stringing this thing out for two more years until he leaves office. I think he's going to be hoisted on his own petard, so to speak. And, um, and I'm very worried about this because we should not have gone down this track. We should not have declared an axis of evil. We should have cut Iran out of that a long time ago. We should have opened up with Iran. We should have dealt with Iran the same way we dealt with Eastern Europe and people we disagree with during the Cold War. Flood them with rock music and blue jeans. And you know what? They're going to come our way. Iran's a great civilization, but maybe it's too late for that now. I don't know, but I know this. We need to be talking directly to Iran. We need to be working on ways of meeting the security interests in the region. We need to keep the military option on the table, but it has to be the absolute last resort. General Clark, thank you so much for talking to us. Really appreciate you coming by. This is Ben Mankiewicz from the Young Turks, and you're listening to us on the Best of the Left podcast. Catch the entire show live at www.theyoungturks.com. God damn, did you just hear what I just heard? Do you even realize that we used to elect people like that to be president in this country? I mean, it, it almost boggles the mind that we can have such qualified people running around this country and it's not our first reaction to beg and plead with them to get in the office and instead we elect the nice guy who we think we could get along with. You see, this is a perfect example of why political activism is so important and it's for the long term you know it's not just about the next election or the next presidential election it's about a cultural shift in political ideology in this country the political spectrum in this country has shifted so far to the right that moderate democrats of you know 50 years ago would be laughed out of the room and called communists in in our current political climate we need to really make a pledge now and for all time to remain ever vigilant and ever active in this democracy that we have. Uh, I, I swear, if you're listening to this show, if you listen to liberal talk radio or regular talk radio or news, and you're just waiting for the day that a Democrat gets in into either the Oval Office or the leadership in either of the houses of, the, of Congress, and... If you're waiting for that day, and when that day comes, you just breathe a sigh of relief and feel like you can go back to your regularly scheduled life and not have to worry about things anymore, you're banned from the show right now. I don't want listeners like that. I'm not saying that everybody has to run for office or that everybody needs to volunteer for campaigns for the rest of their life, but we can't just wait for our victories and then sit back and relax when we get them. And we will get them eventually. But when that happens and we actually have some sway over the direction of the country, that's when it'll be even more important to pull even harder so that we can actually steer this country to get the spectrum of sanity back in its proper place where it once was. Now, just as a side note, uh, I would like to ask a favor of all of you. And I learned back in um, some school class where I took took a, a first aid course that, uh, you know, I, I'm not certified or anything. I, it was just something they did for the class. And 
when uh, when there's a medical emergency, if you sit up and tell someone to call nine one one, then no one will call nine one one. So what you're supposed to do in that situation is sit up, look around, and point to somebody specific, and say, "Hey, you, you call nine one one," and then that person knows that they have to go do it. So then they go go call nine one one. So that's what I'm about to do right here. I need some research done. And the question is something that I heard a rumor about um, probably a year and a half ago. And I really would just like to get this confirmed. And, and then when I get it confirmed, I'll report back so that you can all hear the answer. Uh, I heard that Bush is the first president ever to actually don military wear and military uniforms while in the office of the president. Keeping in mind that we've had lots of generals and military men be president in the past, and they've worn their uniforms their whole lives, but as the rumor goes, they never wore those uniforms while president. And so I'm very curious to know for sure if if that's really true, if Bush really is the first one, uh, because if he is, it's despicable. And, you know, I don't need to explain to you what his military record is. So, Nani, you are, uh, you know, a news hound. Go, uh, go look that up. Ask all your friends on the Daily Kos. Maybe even Kinzer. You're on the internet all the time, digging up stuff. Even though you're over there in Iraq, you're better informed than about 97.5% of the country here. Uh, Kira, I know you're just sitting there. You don't have anything better to do that can't be put off for a little while. Google that up if, uh, if you would. Uh, Matt, go ahead and put that on your to-do list. And, uh, and anyone else who wants to help out, please try to look that up. And we'll, we'll see if we can get a consensus there. And, um, Man, is this guy not just the least qualified person in the world to be leading the country right now? And at the same time, the most arrogant we've ever had? Alright, just one last thing before I go. I am about to play another promo for NewMediaRevolution.org. And it's a brand new one, and I just wanted to give credit to Brian over at Wake Up AM wake up america podcast for doing a fantastic job on this new promo and you'll know exactly what i mean when you hear it so that's it for me have a good night everybody or a good day or, or whatever the anti-bush press makes terror their interests are not your interests their truth is not your truth the corporations have their now we have ours the progressive podcast network now we are the media listen to your media take your country back Go to newmediarevolution.org. Brand new progressive The Progressive Podcast Network. Newmediarevolution.org. Newmediarevolution.org.